If you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 24 verses. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, Ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honour. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of certainty that ye would gain the time. Because ye see, the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me, till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such a thing as any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause the king was angry and very furious, and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Then Dan- Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he should, would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what it is in the darkness and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee, 
For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of scripture. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would grant to us to understand what is written here. I pray that he would uh, help us to see that the truth that is in this text for us. I pray that he would take that truth and impress it upon our hearts. And this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Many generations of Christians have been fascinated by the details of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that are recorded in the second half of Daniel chapter 2. I'm sure many of you have, with great interest, listened to Bible studies where the teacher explained the historical fulfilments of this dream as well as the parts that are yet to be fulfilled. I remember as a child sitting in church meetings where this passage was explained and I can recollect artists' representations of the great image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. I'm sure there was even a funnel graph lesson we had in Sunday school that had a picture of this image. But today I'm not going to talk about the details of Nebuchadnezzar's dream at all. Rather, we're going to concentrate on the first half of the chapter that we've just read. And I've chosen to look at this text for a very particular reason. It reminds us of something that we need to be reminded of regularly. I'm going to work through this story under three headings, and I'm going to go straight to heading number one. First of all, we see here an impossible situation. An impossible situation. I'm going to assume that you know something about who Nebuchadnezzar was and that you have some understanding of the Babylonian Empire over which he presided. Furthermore, I'm going to assume that you know how it was that Daniel and his three friends came to be in Babylon and in the employment of the king as administrators and advisors. In verse 1, we're told that what transpires in this chapter occurred in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is hard to square away with the events of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, most notably the three occasions on which he invaded Judea. Scholars give several plausible explanations, which I won't get into today. All I want you to notice is that these events took place early on in Daniel's time in the Babylonian court. Uh, This is young Daniel, as opposed to old Daniel, who we meet in chapter 6 when he is thrown into the lion's den. Nebuchadnezzar was a vicious, violent, wicked man who came to rule over a vast empire. He was a tyrant of the first order, a ruler that had absolute authority. His word was law. If he wanted something done, it was done. (laughs) If you failed him or defied him, you usually lost your head. Verse 1 tells us that he dreamed dreams and one dream in particular troubled him such that he woke up uh, probably in the the middle of the night and called his counsellors. Now being a pagan, 
It was probably not uncommon for Nebuchadnezzar to believe that his dreams had some significance, that the gods were communicating to him, or that there was some spiritual message in them, or some message about the future. I'm sure there are people among the pagan community here in the Northern Rivers to whom you can go and tell your dreams, and for a small fee, they will tell you what they mean. But again, this dream seems to have been especially concerning. And reading between the lines, it seems as though while he couldn't remember the details, he remembered enough to be troubled by it. His counsellors assembled before him, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and those who are called the Chaldeans. Sounds like the annual Starlight Festival at Bangalore. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar told them that he had had a very upsetting dream. And so his wise men asked him to tell, tell them what it was, and they would interpret it for him. No problems. So that was the kind of thing that wise men Verse 4, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever, tell thy servants the dream, and we will show thee the interpretation. But there was a problem. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember the dream, and he demanded that they tell him what it was. Verse 5, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. <laughs> I can't tell you what I dreamed. You have to tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means, and if you don't, I will have you all executed and your families. <laughs> what a reasonable man. Uh, you think your boss is tough. He's uh, not in the same league as Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar justified his demand in verses 8 and 9. You might like to look there. Verses 8 and 9, the king answered and said, I know of a certainty that you would gain the time, because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. Now this probably means that Nebuchadnezzar knew that these guys were crafty. He knew they would play for time. They would try to wake things out until he forgot the dream altogether or his attention was directed to other matters. Perhaps he was also suggesting that these men would go away and come up with a fake interpretation. <laughs> they would tell him what he wanted to hear. That's why he wanted them to tell him what he dreamed, and then he would have confidence that they could tell him what it meant. Now, How these men responded comes as no surprise. They said, verse 10, the Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such things that any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. In other words, king, what you're asking is completely unreasonable. No king ever has asked such a thing of his counsellors. Verse 11, they continued, And it is a rare thing that the king requireth. And there is none other that can show up before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. 
What you're asking is impossible for a human being to do. Only the gods can do such a thing. Isn't that interesting? They were right, weren't they? Only God could do what they were being asked to do. The table was being set for the one true and living God to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, of course, Nebuchadnezzar would have none of this. He flew into a rage, verse 12. For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, verse 13. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. This was an impossible situation. On pain of death, the king's counsellors were asked to do something they could not do, something that no human being could do, and when they said as much, the king made good on his threat and the executions began. But we don't just see an impossible situation, we also see, and this is heading number two, an unjust sentence. An unjust sentence. On any fair reading of this text, it was manifestly unfair to ask these men to do something they couldn't do and then have them executed for not doing it. And that's obvious. But that's not what I want to draw your attention to. Notice, if you would, what it says at the end of verse 13. It says, And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Evidently, Daniel and his, his three friends, uh, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, belonged to this group of wise men. and They were counsellors to the king, and therefore their deaths had been decreed as well. The king's captain, Arioch, came looking for them. And this was especially unjust... Because it seems as though they weren't there with the other wise men when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel doesn't seem to have known what was going on, or at least he didn't have the whole story. Verse 14, Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Verse 15, He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Daniel and his three friends weren't even given a chance to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and what it meant. And yet their heads were literally on the chopping block. Now maybe you remember a time when you were at school and your whole class got into trouble for something that you weren't part of. Maybe you didn't even know what had happened. And yet you had to go on detention with everyone else or you had to endure the lecture from the principal. Maybe you remember how unfair that felt. You weren't involved. You didn't deserve it. Uh, I remember something like this. Uh, I was in 7K at Coffs Harbour High School, a school of a thousand kids. I had some very wild and rebellious classmates and I remember the principal coming to have a talk with our class one afternoon. <laughs> not the head teacher, not the deputy principal, but the man himself, the principal, Mr Lisko. I think he was of Russian descent. 
He was about six foot four and 130 kilos. He was a really big guy. And it was a very sobering moment for all of us. But I hadn't been involved in any of the bad behaviour because uh, my parents had taught me to do the right thing and because I was basically too scared to get up to mischief. Imagine how Daniel and his companions felt when they learned that the king's captain was coming to execute them. What had they done? Nothing. What chance had they been given? None. It was overwhelmingly unfair. Even though what we read here in chapter 2 occurred in the early part of his time in the Babylonian court, Daniel must have already had a good reputation. Even the king seems to have thought well of Daniel because the king's captain, instead of arresting Daniel or killing him on the spot, allowed him to go and see the king. And Nebuchadnezzar allowed him to approach and he listened to what Daniel had to say. Look please at verse 16. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time that he would show the king the interpretation. Evidently, Nebuchadnezzar granted Daniel this time. There was a stay of execution, which is really quite remarkable. (laughs) What did Daniel say? I'd I'd love to know. (laughs) He must have spoken so wisely and so carefully to this tyrant who was full of murderous rage. And this brings us then to the third heading in our outline. Daniel and his companions were put in an impossible situation. They were subject to an unjust sentence. So what did they do? They resorted to a timeless solution. A timeless solution. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Daniel told his three friends what was going on. He probably told them that he had been given some time, but he was expected shortly to go back to the king and tell him his dream and the interpretation. Why did Daniel do this? Why did he tell his friends what was going on? What what did Daniel want them to do? Look at verse 18. That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel wanted them to pray. Daniel wanted them to pray that God would be merciful to them and reveal the dream and its interpretation. Daniel didn't want them to start making plans to go into hiding. He didn't come and say, guys, pack your bags, let's get out of here. He didn't want them to go to the other wise men with a view to forming a delegation to go to the king and beg for mercy. No, he wanted them to pray. To pray together, to pray with him, to ask the Lord to intervene. And they did pray, and the Lord did answer, and then Daniel prayed again. And his prayer is worthy of a sermon all by itself. It's it's wonderful, it's profound. Verse 19 and following. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. 
for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. But we know how the story ends. Daniel went to Nebuchadnezzar, told him his dream and what it meant. And the pagan king acknowledged the Lord. He gave glory to the one true and living God and he promoted Daniel and his three companions. Look please at verses 46 through 49. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odours unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, remember this is a pagan speaking, of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. The Daniel requested of the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now this story reminds me of another time and of another tyrant. It reminds me of another occasion where God's people were put in an impossible situation with the threat of an unjust sentence. Please, if you would, turn over to the book of Acts now. The book of Acts, chapter 12. We go from Babylon to Jerusalem. From the court of Nebuchadnezzar to the court of Herod. But please, if you would, follow along as I read from verse 1. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. The Bible says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now Luke doesn't record the details of James' arrest and execution. All he tells us that it, is that it was done to win the favour of the Jews. Probably the Jewish leaders who oversaw the temple and who had some authority over Jewish affairs around the Roman Empire. It seems to have been a political manoeuvre rather than reflective of a deep hatred that Herod had for the fledgling Christian community. All James had done was follow Jesus and fulfil the commission that Jesus had left him with. His death was a great injustice and we can imagine how upset the church in Jerusalem must have been to have lost one of their leaders in such brutal fashion. And we can imagine how fearful they must have been. Fearful for their own safety. This was no doubt heightened when Herod made another move. Look please at verse 3. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread, verse 4. 
And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four Quartonians of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Herod had Peter arrested. He was the most prominent leader of the church. And the language in verse 4 tells us that he intended to make a public spectacle of Peter's trial and execution. And what I want you to notice is how the Christian community responded to this situation. A situation in which they were powerless to do anything and which was deeply unfair. They couldn't storm the prison and set Peter free. Herod was unlikely to welcome a delegation and listen to their pleas for mercy. So what did they do? Well, they did the same thing Daniel and his three friends had done 600 years earlier. Verse 5. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. The Christians got together and prayed. And we know the story. Uh, Peter was miraculously freed from prison and he ended up interrupting a prayer meeting that was being held in the house of John Mark's mother. People had gathered to pray for him and there he was at the front door. This is what God's people have done in every age, in the Old Testament and the New. I've pointed you to just two examples. There are many more I could have chosen. The saints come together to pray. And especially when life was difficult. This was their first response to come together and pray. I don't think you need me to tell you this morning that the New Testament calls us to pray. To pray as individuals, to pray together. There are many verses that make this plain. Uh, Verses like Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. These are texts that most of you have known for a long time. The call to prayer is obvious. Are you answering it? Are you praying at home? Are you taking some time each day to give thanks, to make intercession for others, to pray for your family, to pray for yourself? Do you pray at home for the people in this room? Your brothers and sisters in the family of God. What about when you get together with people from church socially? Do do you pray? Is that something you even think of doing? Now why don't we pray before you go home? Why don't we pray for this situation we've been discussing? When was the last time you prayed with someone other than your spouse or your children... And you weren't at church, and you weren't at work in a Christian setting. When was the last time you said to a brother or sister in Christ, I'm really struggling at the moment, can we pray together? Or, I heard so-and-so is having a bad time, let's pray for them right now. 
What about our life together as a body of believers, as a local church? Are we following the pattern we see in the Bible and especially in the New Testament? When there is opportunity to pray together, are we taking it up? Do we value those opportunities? Or is praying together way down the list of priorities? Nine times out of ten, we can find the time to do what we want to do. Where there's the will, we can usually find the way. Uh, This is one of the ironclad laws of Western middle-class Christianity. We can almost always find a way to do whatever it is we want to do. The issue is what we want, what we value, what we prioritise. And we're also just as adept at finding reasons why we can't do the things we don't want to do. I am sure we don't believe that our lives are so easy today that we don't need to pray. Quite the opposite. I think we recognise how difficult life is at the moment. I think we well understand the challenges we're facing as individuals and as a church. Some of the things we're dealing with seem impossible and perhaps even unfair. We know we don't have enough strength. We know we don't have enough resources to overcome these challenges. We know we're limited, we know we're weak, so shouldn't we be motivated to pray? And to pray together, like Daniel and his three friends, like those Christians in Jerusalem. I said at the beginning that I wanted to remind you of something that we all need reminding of regularly. And I think the message is pretty clear. God's people pray. And they pray together. We are commanded to pray. And we need to pray. We really have no other option except to pray. How you go from here and apply this reminder, I will leave up to you. Think about what I've said. Think about what God is saying. And let his word have its way in your life. Amen.